Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 31st, 2021, and my guest is economist and author David Henderson, a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and an emeritus professor of economics with the Naval Postgraduate School. David blogs at EconLog. He's the editor of the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics. Both are part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, which hosts EconTalk. And this is David's second appearance on EconTalk. He was here last in Amazingly long time ago, David, July of 2007, when we were discussing disagreeable economists. Our topic for today is David's new book, The Essential UCLA School of Economics, co-authored with Stephen Globerman. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guest with the Blackwire 5220 headset. David, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. So this is a very short very well done introduction to the UCLA School of Economics. It's focused mainly but not exclusively on what I think of as the two best economists not to win a Nobel Prize, Armin Alchin and Harold Demsitz, uh, two of my favorite economists. Uh, and I feel they've received insufficient attention here, their work on EconTalk. So I'm really glad we're here to talk about them as well as UCLA generally. I want to start with an insight that you quote uh, of, of Alchin's, uh, you say his work was guided by the insight, quote, you tell me the rules and I'll tell you what outcomes to expect. And I think that's an incredibly deep, simple way of capturing a key part of the economic way of thinking. What, is that, what does that mean to you, that phrase? And by the way, Armin started with that idea, not in those words exactly, but with that idea, my first class I ever had with him at UCLA in the graduate program in September 1972, he said, if you look at incentives, if you look at the, the way incentives are structured, you can understand a lot of behavior that otherwise is mysterious. So I still remember my first day of class, he said, now when you go to the UCLA bookstore to buy the books, you're going to be in a long line and you're going to be really angry about that. But you shouldn't be angry. You should be happy because it means that economics works. Economics explains behavior. The people working there are on, on a, just a standard wage. They don't have a strong incentive, but more important, there's no real ownership. This is essentially a cooperative, and so no one ha- no one's what he later introduced us to called the residual claimant. No one gets this big benefit if they do better. And so I wasn't happy when I heard that, <laughs> but I thought, wow, this guy is real. This guy from the get-go is trying to tell us how important economics is, how important incentives are, and then, of course, later how important property rights are in explaining behavior. And he was um, he was a provocateur, I assume, in the classroom. I never had a class with him, uh, but my understanding from former students of his, like yourself, is that he loved saying things that would shock people and and give answers to puzzles of everyday life that that he thought were were um, true and surprising. 
Yes, he would come to class pretty much every day and say, why do we see this? And of course, oh, and one of the things he laid out the first day of class is, if you don't put up your hand, I don't know you. And so (laughs) take a chance and your whole capital value is at risk here. (laughs) <laughs> and so I got that. I already kind of got that, but I really got it. And so we'd put up our hands and answer, and he'd say, no, 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 and not give any reasons. We'd go back to our carols and say, now, why was he right? Why were we wrong? And every once in a while, we'd figure out that one of us was right. And we'd go back to class the next day and say, Professor Elchin, we think blah, 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 blah. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. Well, why didn't you admit it? Well, I wanted to see how confident you were of your answer. <laughs> wow. Uh, that so. reminds me of a story from my graduate school days when um, Gary Becker asked a question and someone you know, he asked, does, does this go, does this variable go up or down? And someone said uh, up and he said, do you want to flip that coin one more time? Uh, so, you know, it's, it gets a little scary in there. I actually once answered up and he said, are you sure? And I said down and he said, no, you had it right the first time. Because I was panicking. Um, but th- those were, um, was he intimidating? Yeah, he was intimidating. Um, he was, and actually, I mean, what I figured out later was he's kind of a shy man. Hmm. And by the way, I think his shyness, I know I'm going a little afield here, but it relates to your introduction. I think his shyness is in some part the reason he didn't win the Nobel Prize. He was shy and humble. And so he never really pushed himself. It wasn't not I, a promoter. I, I. He, yeah. yeah, he wasn't a self-promoter at all. And so, but yeah, but yeah, he was intimidating. <laughs> so he wrote a, a textbook with William Allen. The first edition was called Exchange and Production. The first University version. Economics. No, I think the first one was called Exchange and Production by itself. University no? Economics, 1964. And Exchange and Production came later. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I don't think that's what it says in the introduction to the current one, but maybe I'm, oh, really? I misunderstood it. But the current edition, which is edited by Jerry Jordan, uh, who I think was a student of Alchin's, is called Universal Economics. And I just want to put a plug in for it. You can get it for eight ninety nine on your Kindle. It's 740 plus pages. And the only thing I don't like about it is it has the answers to the questions, which I don't think Alchin maybe would have liked, given what you just said. Yeah, he answered every odd one at the back uh, at the, of university economics. So you had to figure out half the answers on your own without, <laughs> without that crutch. But I think the new one has them all, but for what it's worth. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that book uh, was, was a very... I, people ask me all the time, I want to learn more economics. Which, what, what, what textbook should I read? And the answer is there really aren't textbooks to read because textbooks are not written to be read. They're, written, they're often written to be used as a reference in a yeah. class where there's a lecture. But university economics, now universal economics, the, the book by Armin Alchin and William Allen, and now edited with Jerry Jordan's help, it is actually a book you can read. More or less. I mean, there's some things in there that you're not going to want to read charts and graphs and other things, but there's a lot of exposition in there about how the world works, is my memory. Is that, do you think, is yes, that right? Yes, that, that's right. It's kind of old style. In other words, it's, it's, it's actually a literary work as well as, as a textbook. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's very, I TA'd out of it my first quarter at UCLA to 18 and 19 year olds. So on Sunday afternoon, 
I would answer every question at the back of each chapter just in case they asked, which they never did. And I learned so much from that. But I thought, this is too hard for these undergrads. And sure enough, I think that was true. And when people look at that book, uh, if you leave through it in, the, in its physical form, it, it doesn't look like a modern graduate textbook because there are not many equations, if any. And right. I think that lures people into thinking, oh, this is a simple, this is an easy book. But it's not. It's deep and it's challenging. And of course, great economics doesn't have to be mathematical. Right, right. And that's one of the things I learned from Elchin was that, that you can be completely rigorous in words. And I remember once I used some term, I said that someone would minimize the cost on some assignment I did for him. And he answers the margin. If you minimize the cost, you're going to produce zero. And it's like, oh, yeah. So he said you would economize. That was his term, which is a little vague, but, but still it was better than I had. Well, I think he meant balance the costs and the benefits to get to yeah. the best place you could get, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Fan- that, that complicated idea is captured in maybe that one, one word, economize. Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned, private, you mentioned property rights, uh, both – Alchin and Demsets um, emphasized the importance of property rights, the implications of property rights, and we'll talk a little bit about Demsets' contribution in particular. But I want to start with an example from your book, uh, which is the power of private property and a lesson uh, that, that you use about Robert Barrow, um, past econ talk guest and, and a, a first-rate economist. Yeah, uh, Bob Barrow was at University of Chicago at the time. One of his favorite colleagues to talk to was Bob Lucas. Bob Lucas, I don't know if he was literally a chain smoker, but he smoked a lot. And Barrow hated cigarette smoke. So Barrow had a sign on his door, no smoking except for Bob Lucas. (laughs) And the idea was the trade-off with other people wasn't worth it, like, you want to come and talk to me, don't smoke. With Bob Lucas, I'm gaining so much from you, Bob, that I am willing to suffer with that cigarette smoke. And it's a beautiful example of the subtlety of property rights and also, by the yeah. way, of, of free association. The idea that you can let people into your house if you choose yes. and you can keep them out if you choose. That's, in a, in a way, the essence of of private property. And here, because he, in theory, I mean, he literally didn't own his office, but he had – uh, and there was a norm established about who yeah. could come into his office. Um, he chose to have a nuanced norm. Some people right. could, some people couldn't under certain circumstances. Right, right, yeah. And so Dem sets, of course, what he's most known for, and we emphasize this in the book, is his theory of property rights, which was kind of uh, – basic in the 60s, not a lot of bells and whistles, but still it was pathbreaking. It's, uh, it was published in the American Economic Review in 1967. They would never publish an article like that today. There are no equations. There aren't even graphs. There aren't even tables. There's no but data. What he, no, well, data not in a no, number numbers, sense. Yeah. No numbers, but there are data. Yeah. And the idea is that he's asking, when do property rights come about? And he's essentially saying it's endogenous. It comes about depending on the circumstances. So he looks at uh, Canadian Indians, now often called First Nations people, in Quebec 
where the fur trade was starting to really soar. There was a lot of the fur trade. Well, if you have beavers on your property, well, I'm calling it your property. If you have beavers in a certain area, you don't want people from other tribes coming and taking those beavers. So they started establishing property rights, the various First Nations tribes did, because it was worth it. Because, you know, there was a potentially huge loss from having someone take your property. And then he contrasts this with the American Southwest, where the, the, the lands are so vast, the animals are moving from point A to point B, and that might be 50 miles, and it's very hard to establish property rights. So essentially, it comes down to property rights will be established when the gains exceed the costs, which, and then you've got to know a lot about the gains and a lot about the costs, but that was a really nice insight as opposed to what? As opposed to property rights are established when governments say they are property rights. In other words, it was this thing that came about in an economy without necessarily a huge government or maybe even no government at all. Yeah, it's an example of um the, the kind of work that Eleanor Ostrom did that got her the Nobel Prize, the, the informal yes. norms and cooperative ways that people find to get around social problems. And it's not, I think, ju- it's not just that uh, you don't want other people taking the beaver. It's that for the tribe as a whole, for the people as a whole, you want to preserve the quality of and the potential uh, wealth of the stock of, of animals on, in your area. And you want to avoid the tragedy of the commons, that is, killing an animal that is relatively small or young, in the case of fishing, taking a fish that's small rather than throwing it back. If you throw it back and no one owns it, you have no chance of getting it. It's one in a, in a zillion. If it's your lake, your property, your area of, of where you can catch, say, a lobster, you have an incentive to, to release it and let it grow to a more optimal size and that way get more value out of the resource. And I think that insight uh, is is also really is important. Yes, and so he, he had that insight. That insight is in there. And by the way, the the article that gets cited most is an article in Science by Garrett Hardin called "The Tragedy of the Commons." He used it to look at population, which I think is a misuse, actually. But that's another story. But it it was actually Demsets. Demsets didn't come up with the term, but Demsets came up with the idea over a year before Hardin's article was published, which I think is, is really interesting. The idea that in the absence of property rights, common property is overused and, and yes. not used ef- efficiently, or at least to max- and by that meaning to, to maximize as much as possible the overall value of the resource to the, to the group. Yes, and can I mention one other thing about that? Sure. Elchin and Demstrats wrote another piece that, that Steve Globerman and I hi- um, highlight on and I remember this happening when I was a teenager in Canada where they took all these baby seals and clubbed them to death and they showed it on this Canadian show that was kind of the equivalent of 60 Minutes. And we were just horrified. Well, Elchin and Demsus looked into it and said the Canadian government had set a quota of 50,000. So you better get in there to get one of those or more, some of those 50,000. So, of course, they're going to go in there and just kill them mercilessly. And that was the result of some pretty unthought-out rules. And again, that's, that's Elchin and, and Demsets both in, in understanding the role of incentives. The other, of course, important role of property rights 
uh, that that they both were were aware of and and talked about is is the role in reducing conflict. Uh, uh, you know, I, you know, Walter Williams used to say, um, through most of human history, the way you got wealthy was to hit your neighbor over the head with a club and take your neighbor's stuff. And that, of course, doesn't that makes your neighbor wealthy. That makes you wealthy if you've got the club. It makes the neighbor poorer. And it's not just zero sum. It's actually negative sum because then you invest in resources to keep from being clubbed over the head. The, the, one of the great advantages of property rights, in theory, if they're enforced and, and successful, is that it reduces uh, the fight over whose is what, who, what belongs to whom. Right. No, that's right. And 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 that's key. And again, um, and that ha- and that also relates pretty closely to exchange. Both sides gain from exchange, and that's just a key insight economists have generally. But that's all the way through the work of the UCLA economists, especially Elchin and Demsetz. Why is that important? Do you think? I, I think that's an underrated. And when you tell it to people, they go, yeah, big deal. Why do you think that's important? Mutually beneficial exchange. Well, okay. I, I remember uh, Demsets came to the University of Winnipeg when my libertarian club used our whole annual budget to hire him to give three talks. And that's what convinced me I might want to be an economist. And I still remember in Q&A when someone, uh, it was a professor, said, Michael Harrington in his book, The Other America, says in any transaction, there's a winner and a loser. And blah, 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 blah. And I'm wondering now, how's Demsitz going to handle that? And Demsitz says, well, that's obviously wrong. In any transaction, there's a winner and a winner. Otherwise, the transaction wouldn't take place. And it's like, duh. Like, I immediately got it. And it was just this powerful thing. And so then that made me, well, I'm talking about me. But anyway, that, that leads to the idea exploitation is very hard to define because in an actual voluntary transaction, not slavery, which of course is involuntary, but in a voluntary transaction, both sides gain. So it's even, it's hard to find that there is exploitation in a certain sense. And we have an episode with, uh, with Mike Munger on what he calls EU voluntary, EU voluntary spelled out uh, to try to add some nuance to this idea because we could imagine transactions that were nominally voluntary but where one party might be quote in extremists having right. you know being in a very difficult situation but i think what's powerful about the mutually beneficial exchange idea a phrase that rolls off my tongue rather effortlessly but i think probably for listeners and others it's like mutually well, what it just means that for a transaction to take place both parties have to expect to be better off that's just a novel idea. As you point out, a lot of people think, well, obviously there's somebody who's going to lose. They're going to make a bad trade. Uh, And the idea that trade is mutually beneficial to both parties, especially when there are lots of alternatives, right, which would starts to get you to thinking about competition, why competition is important. It's it's actually a, a deep, important idea. It is. It is. And of course, exchange leads to comparative advantage because if you have the possibility of exchange, you say, okay, what am I the least cost producer of? And I'll start doing more of that. And so, yeah, it's just, it's all, and it's all the way through economics. This is not just UCLA economics. It's just that the UCLA people emphasized it in a way that sometimes others don't. Yeah. It's funny. There was a, 
there was a tweet today uh, on Twitter. There was somebody said, um, you know, it capitalism didn't produce your iPhone. Workers did. And I remember, and of course, in some sense, that's a true statement, but produce their, the right way to think about it is workers manufacture a phone, which is amazing, extraordinary thing. They do that with the help of a great deal of capital. But the thing that's crucial is that the idea behind it got thought of by someone. And that happened to be a visionary in this case, Steve Jobs, with, with, with the help of a bunch of, of friends and colleagues, plus investors who took a chance and right. risked money. But what we see, oh, well, the workers are making the phone. They're the people I should be grateful to. And you should be grateful to people who produce the things you make. I have no problem with right. that. But it's easy to forget that that's way down the exchange, the, the, the creation process, the yes. manufacturing, the, the conception, the risk-taking. The, the, and, and, of course, most a lot of products fail, and investors lose all their money. And this was one that we noticed made it. But if we only focus at that last stage, we're going to really miss uh, what's happening there. Right. And by the way, and, and the other thing going on, of course, is those workers are in an exchange. Oh, I mean, excellent. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're exchanging their labor for money. There's a division of risk. So they are risking losing a job if the product fails, but they aren't risk risking losing their paycheck, that two-week paycheck, or their uh, no house. matter what happens to the project. Yes, yes. Right. They're, they're only risking the ongoing payment. And assuming that they have alternatives, which I think many workers do, they're, they're getting more from that exchange than if they didn't take the job. It doesn't mean – I think the reason that the Michael Harrington Other America thing gets stuck in people's minds about a winner and a loser is they think, well, okay, both people are better off, but – but who gets more? Right, and I think right. that's a misleading uh, – it's the wrong way to think about it. And often it's not even answerable, you know, what more right. means. Uh, sometimes there's more as measured by money. You could say, well, the profits of the owner might be bigger than the, the net benefit over the alternative of the workers. But the idea that exploitation, because you think the salary is low in that workplace, is is tricky because – it is voluntary. Now, you could say if they don't have any alternatives, how voluntary is it? That's a legitimate question. Obviously, uh, you know, I talk often on the program about what a dis- dispiriting and mediocre education system we have for especially people growing up in poverty. And that limits your alternatives. And that's part of the reason right. why people take, have to take low-paying jobs even when they have alternatives. All the alternatives right. are relatively low-paying. But right. you don't want to blame the person who's actually hired that person <laughs> right. and paid them out of their profit, expected profit, for, for the level of the wage. It's not, they're just the people who write the paycheck, sign the check. It's, they don't set the amount. Competition right. does. Right, and they're the ones who actually place the highest value on those workers, or else they wouldn't be employing them. Right. Yeah. And we did an episode a while back. Uh, I, I'm looking it up here. It's 2012 with uh, Lisa Turner. She's an organic farmer, or was at the time. I hope she's still uh, thriving as a farmer, and I hope she's still listening. But she talked about how challenging it was to hire young people because they'd come to her and say, you know, I just don't, you know, she'd offer them a job and she'd tell them what the wage was. And they'd say, well, I think I, that seems like a low amount. I should get more than that, and and she'd say, "Well, let me let me let me explain something. Uh, this isn't a charity. 
I'm not doing this out of the goodness of my heart. I enjoy, you know, she might enjoy hiring them and seeing them flourish under in the workplace. But for me to make it worthwhile to hire you, it has to be the case that what you do for me is worth at least or more than the amount I pay you. <laughs> and and that is like a mind-blowing idea for yeah. non-economists sometimes, for everyday human beings. And, yeah. and it really gets back to our point about mutually beneficial exchange. It's saying, I'm not hiring you because I think you deserve a job, and I'm not setting your salary because I think what's a fair wage. I'm setting it based on the fact that I have to be able to attract you into this opportunity, and you better be able to contribute at least as much as I pay you or then yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's welfare. It's a handout. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I think that's I'm getting a little afield, but I think it's worth saying that I think that's why it's really useful when you're a young person to have a job, even like in high school. And I remember when this guy had a drive in drive in uh, you know, like a Dairy Queen type thing, hamburgers and fries and stuff, a couple of blocks from where I lived in Carmen and I was about eleven or twelve. And he came to me and asked me if I would clean up in the morning after all the stuff on the ground and put it in the incinerator. And he offered me 50 cents. And I had to get up at 7 o'clock and go and do it. And I was done by 8. And 50 cents to an 11 or 12-year-old was a great deal, especially when every once in a while I'd find a quarter in the ground. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so it was just like I knew he was doing it because he needed that work. And and I I was in no position to judge whether it was worth fifty or seventy five. Although I visited him and I introduced my daughter to him decades later, and he said, "You know, I would have offered you seventy five, but you didn't bargain." <laughs> but anyway, so it was worth at least seventy five, and and I just learned a lot just from that one job. I, I think it's an interesting challenge as a human being. When we're interacting with strangers in the workplace, we're not working for family in a voluntary way, which is a beautiful thing also, or within a nonprofit doing work that, again, is unpaid. When we're working in the marketplace, typically hired by a stranger, it's easy to think of it as, what's in it for me? Okay, I got paid. That's great. The whole idea that I need to think about what I contribute to the world if I want to be compensated (laughs) is not natural. Uh, we tend right. to think of it, of work as an entitlement, as a wage, as a question of justice. The idea that economics teaches is not always true 100% of the time in, in any precision. But the idea that part of what determines how much I earn is determined by how much I contribute. It's a really beautiful idea that, unfortunately, I think we usually forget because we see the, the transaction as a very um, – as a transaction when, in fact, something much broader is, is taking place. Right, that's right. And by the way, I think that's one reason it's very useful for people to be discussing the pay that really high-level professional athletes get, because everyone understands that. Everyone understands that Mahomes is going to get paid well because he's such a great quarterback. And, and so, you know, I think that's really – that can help people think through at their level, well, what am I doing what value am I creating, and therefore, what should I get? And to be fair to the skeptics of the market system, what's amazing about sports, and the reason I think economists tend to enjoy sports maybe in, in one particular way that you're discussing, is that this is a scorecard. We, we know who wins. Now, yeah, we, may not, yeah. we may not easily know how much each person contributes, and I think 
uh, our UCLA economist wrote a really important did some really important work on that that phenomenon, which is the question of team production. Right? right when when things are done in a team, it's often hard to ascribe the outcome to any one person. But of course, a great football coach or a great baseball general manager understands has some non-easily quantified ways of figuring out who's contributing. may not always be accurate. They do the best they can. But there's a score. There is some bottom line that's often a little more uh, observable in terms of statistics, say, of a quarterback or a a hitter in in baseball that's not literally there in the workplace. In the workplace, you see uh, inputs. You know how many hours people are in the office sometimes, but you don't always know what they actually contribute. And that, uh, of course, is a, is a challenge in thinking about how to organize uh, a workforce. But but sports is an example where you see that the wages are and pay is often determined by productivity. Right. And by the way, I'm glad that kind of segues nicely into one of the major Elchin Demsetz contributions, which was the theory of the firm. Yeah. Talk and about that. Yeah, they wrote a, a, an article in the American Economic Review, and this one was listed as one of the top 20 of, the, of, a, of a century of articles by some economists, including Kenneth Arrow and others. And the idea was that the firm is team production. That's what it's about. And so, but as you said, you have trouble often monitoring inputs, monitoring the productivity of inputs. So the firms that tend to do well are going to be ones that do that well. And again, that's where it's really important to have what's called the residual claimant, an entity that has the right to the revenues that are left after all outlays have been paid. That's the residual, the profit, essentially. And so if you have a residual claimant, that residual claimant has very good incentives to monitor the workers, figure out who's shirking. They use the word shirking uh, a few times in that article, I believe, and, and try to figure out you know, who's contributing the most or not the most, but who's contributing at least what he or she is paid. And, and that... Um, that whole idea was was a further advancement along the lines that Ronald Coase had started in 1937 with his article, The Nature of the Firm. And so this was another major step. This was in 1972, I believe. So 35 years later, they kind of advanced the ball on that. Yeah, re- Demsets. The reason it was, I think it's such an important paper, there are a lot of reasons, but you know, I think a lot of times, quote, for simplicity – Economists assume that, say, productivity is observed, and it's almost never observed. It's observed in so-called piecework. You're, say, picking uh, walnuts or fruit yeah. or vegetables in, over a certain time period. You have a very good measure of how much work a, a worker does and whether they're worth it or not. In fact, typically with piecework, you pay them a certain amount, and they monitor themselves. If they can't earn enough in an hour to make it worthwhile, they'll quit. And you, you, you know, still there's still a challenge of, of what to set the wage at. You can still mess that up the piecework rate, but most of life is not like that. It's not where your individual productivity is not observable. You're working in a team. Uh, you could argue that actually that academic life is a little bit unteamly. There are some there's collaboration that takes place, but it's you know when you teach in in a classroom. There's not much teamwork. 
it's it's right. it, it's up it's up to you now. Assessing the quality of teaching is incredibly hard. There are many ways to do it badly. I don't want to suggest that it's easy. But the more interesting cases, I think, are where a team of people works on uh, a serious project that requires multiple people's involvement. And a sports team again is an obvious example. Uh, it's very it's often very hard to figure out what any one player contributes to the team or any one colleague contributes to the work project. And thinking about that subtly, it's not enough just to point out, well, it's hard to do. It's not enough to point out that um, firms that do it better will make more profit than ones that don't. There were a lot, there were other insights in that article. I don't remember very well now at last, but, but they started a whole literature on thinking about that challenge that essentially had been ignored, I think, until then, more or less. That's right. And uh, some follow-on work not done at UCLA, but it was done by my colleagues when I was at University of Rochester Business School, uh, William Meckling and Michael Jensen, where they they kind of took that and, and pushed it to the next step. And so, yeah, there was, there was a kind of an incremental building from that insight through the 70s and 80s. It's part and parcel of what we were talking about before, that that economists at UCLA and other economists as well, of course, but especially at UCLA, were interested in understanding how the world works. They'd see something in the world that seemed kind of puzzling. You know, another example, that would be the work that um, that ben, ben Klein did and others on um, vertical integration. Like, why is it that, that a firm might buy a supplier or supply its own stuff? Why wouldn't it take advantage of COSA's insight and say, well, you know, a firm could just buy its raw materials, why would it want to have to then use this less effective on the surface method of command and control of top down of making your own stuff, which means you have to hire people, decide on what the inputs are, figure out what how much to pay them. Wouldn't it be better to let the marketplace produce that at a competitive price and then you would just buy it in the open marketplace? And I, their understanding, their insight that in certain situations, two firms would have a um, an, in, an an incentive potentially to exploit the other, and to avoid right. that, you would buy the firm and do the uh, the production of the input yourself. I didn't say that very well. You can take a crack at it. Go ahead. <laughs> right, and Steve Globerman and I in the book talk about that. The example of say uh, a real, a coal mine. And they want to ship their coal out, so they need a rail line. Well, if they make a deal with a railroad to buy the to, to produce a railroad, a huge part of the cost of the railroad is sunk. So they might take advantage of the railroad and say, "Well, we're not going to pay what you thought we were going to pay to ship the coal." On the other hand, there's one coal mine there, and the railroad could say, "Well, you've got we're the only game in town. We're going to charge you even more than you thought." we would charge and so a simple solution is to vertically integrate have the same company own the coal mine and the railroad and yeah so that is a big part of vertical integration And by the way one of the things that ucla contributed to as well as other economists um, or legal economic scholars like robert bork is the idea that vertical integration isn't something to worry much about and that one has lasted. In other words, court decisions from the Supreme Court on down have found, you know what, this vertical integration isn't anti-competitive. It's just solving these kinds of problems. So that's, I think, a long-run policy effect of work done not 
just at UCLA, but partly at UCLA. And of course, there are other ways to solve the problem. You could have long-term contracts, but they have other costs. And so this vertical integration idea, the reason I love it is that if you're not careful, you might think, well, the reason you might have your own railroad line if you're a coal company, is that way you won't have to pay for your railroad because it would be (laughs) yours. Don't laugh, David. It's a very common mistake that I think people make in forgetting about opportunity cost, right? The fact that there are other other uses for those resources, and it's not just the out-of-pocket payment that counts. No, that's right. It's why when I was eight years old, I wanted to own a candy store so I could have all the candy I wanted. (laughs) Free candy! (laughs) Except you have to buy the store, which is really expensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, It's a good good example. And, and of course, there's a little bit of truth to it because if you did own the candy store – that's not true. I'm gonna, I was going to. I was going to say. I was. I was going to commit another fallacy. Um, I'm going to leave that one alone. Speaking of fallacies, let's turn to an important insight of Demsets, which um, has come to be called the Nirvana fallacy, and I think it's um, it's a very common uh, mistake that people make. Uh, they so talk about what um, about what uh, Demsets argued in that in that paper. Right. So we have a whole chapter in that because it was that important. Demsitz wrote an article in 1966 in the Journal of Law and Economics called Information and Efficiency, Another Viewpoint. And in it, he identified what he called the Nirvana approach. Economists who talk about it now call it the Nirvana fallacy. Wikipedia even has a quite good entry on it. We'll put a and link the up idea, to that. And what he, uh, what he did was he took... Uh, famous piece by Kenneth Arrow in the early 60s on incentives to invent, in which Arrow identified all these market failures, ways that markets would underinvest in invention and innovation. And Demset said, this is the quintessential example of the Nirvana approach. And within the Nirvana approach, he identified three fallacies, the grass is greener fallacy, the free lunch fallacy, and the people can be different fallacy. And so what we did in that chapter was laid out literally what Arrow had said, and then how Demsets identified which of those three fallacies was at work. Arrow looks at ways the market might not be optimal in some narrow sense, and then says, oh, well, then we'll have government, some kind of government subsidy or government regulation without examining, okay, you just pointed out how incentives in the private sector might be non-optimal. How do incentives in the government sector work? Why do those people suddenly have the right incentive to do the right thing? And Demsets was kind of merciless at laying this out, not in a nasty way, just in a very tight, analytic way that that Arrow just had not identified why that would work better. And so that one lasted. I mean, people still, what, 55 years later, talk about the Nirvana fallacy. Yeah, I think the – I'm going to defend Arrow for a minute, even though I really love the Nirvana fallacy and Demsitz's observation, <clears throat> I think there's a there's nothing wrong with identifying the fact that markets work imperfectly, incentives aren't perfect, uh, there's fraud, there's a lot of things that go wrong in private voluntary transactions. There could be intimidation, there could be violence, there could be uh, asymmetric information, there could be externalities. We have a, there's a long list of things that people like to point to. 
it's okay, I think, to point out that it could be better if the government did it. The challenge is showing that it could actually work that way. And I don't think it's enough to say, to, to critique the way I understand deficits, or at least the way you're saying it, I don't think it's enough to say that, that you know, well, government will also have bad incentives. It's not a bad thing to point out, and it's often true. And I think it would be naive to say, but they'll be overcome by public spiritedness. Uh, and then, you know, at that point, you want to do some kind of case study, ideally, or how in some situations, perhaps some societies, government's done it, others, the the uh, private sector has done it, and see maybe which case might be more attractive. You may not be able to judge right. it easily. You know, there's a famous example of um, the economics of the lighthouse. It's quite complicated, but, you know. For a long time, economists used the lighthouse as an example of something that could not be provided privately because the incentives weren't there. You know, they would say, well, what are you going to do? You're going to turn off the light for the people who don't pay, and then what about the ones who have paid? It'll be dark on the ocean for them. And that was an article by Paul Samuelson saying that the lighthouse is a public good that has to be provided publicly. Coast came along and said, well, private lighthouses exist. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's awkward for the theory that they can't exist. They actually do exist, and they overcome the free rider problem and the problem of turning off the light not by uh, creating associations and dues and ways of of enforcing that. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember the article so well. One of my favorite economic articles articles in economics, though. I think later, by the way, some people have come along, we'll try to link to this, have critiqued Coase's analysis, at least the history of the lighthouse and how it was actually provided. But I do think it's a, it's a great example of how the ivory tower, if you're not careful, you can uh, essentially, uh, to use an inside joke, assume a can opener. And our side, you know, free market people tend to can do that too. Oh, the profit incentive will solve that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Often it does. That's why, I, you know, my view on this is that there's a presumption that market right. incentives work well. Not always. They may not work right. in a particular situation. Similarly, I don't want to say, well, government never works well because they're all just a bunch of bureaucrats with no incentive. But sometimes inspired by you know their desire to, to be good public citizens, it's possible they can do a good job. I don't – you never want to argue that say – well, anyway, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that and let you respond. Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, in The Lighthouse, one of the textbooks that I actually really liked and used in a, in a course – when I taught at the Naval Postgraduate School, was Joe Stiglitz's Economics of the Public Sector. On the cover is this big picture of a lighthouse. And I always just found that so, so ironic. Um, yeah, so that was always what Coase had going for him. I guess we're getting away from UCLA, but Coase, <laughs> he was kind of an honorary ucla in a sense. Very much uh, in the tradition, of tra- an emphasis on transaction costs, which is part yeah. of the UCLA tradition to a large extent. Yeah, and his whole idea and Demsets and Elch and all those people was let's look at let's look at the reality. Let's look at actually what goes on. That gets back to Demsets' property rights with, with Indian tribes and so on. One oh sorry. Go ahead. I wanted to shift it and make sure we talk a little about Hirschleifer. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. And I and I'm gonna try to get us to Earl Thompson before we're done. Go ahead. Okay, okay. <laughs> One of the things that I enjoyed when Steve Globerman and I were writing this piece was to look back at Jack Hirschleifer's work. Now, Jack, first of all, he was a fantastic person. I just really liked him as a person. He really was delightful. 
Yeah, yeah, just, and very not sweet, sweet, sweet. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you knew him. And so he wrote something for the Rand Corporation called Disaster and Recovery. And it was when people were really worried. This is like late 50s, early 60s. People were really worried about, we could have an all-out nuclear war. What would things look like afterwards? And so, of course, we don't have experience of that other other than in Japan, which was localized. But he said, okay, let's look at other things. Let's look at Japan. Let's look at Germany after all the bombing and so on. And let's look at how quick recovery was. And the bottom line, to simplify a little, is recovery was quick. It was amazing how cooperative forces came together and just started digging themselves out. So I think um, he mentions, it was I'm not sure if it was the Dresden firebombing or the Hamburg bombing or one of those where within a few days, electricity was flowing again, which was it's, it's key in a modern society. And so, Jack, we have a chapter just on Jack Hirschleifer's work on that issue. And, and you know, again, it was, it was really path-breaking at the time. Yeah, I think um, I, I can't help but think about it in our, in our current world where we kind of shut down our economy. We didn't destroy it through bombing but we because of the pandemic we basically put it in a deep freeze for a while many many societies many countries and economies have have done that as a response to covid and i think it's really important and i don't remember Firstlifer talks about this it's really important to remember that buildings are bad when they're destroyed uh, deaths are a, tr- a horrible tragedy and it's when they're innocent people. But a lot of what is not destroyed is not observable. A lot of what is not destroyed is know-how. A lot of what is not destroyed is creativity. A lot of what is not destroyed is the trial and error, the results of trial and error that people have figured out. And one of the reasons I think it's quite beautiful that people respond relatively quickly to a natural disaster is they take the capital we can't see, which is the human capital inside the brain, inside their heads spread out across different people, and they reconnect. Arnold Kling writes about this, this these patterns of specialization and and um, and production that, that, that take place in a healthy economy. And after a tragedy or destruction, whether it's a hurricane or a or war, um, all of a sudden you know, people often emphasize that. Oh, and now they can use these new technologies. Well, they could have used those before. Uh, that that was nothing stopped them. It's not the opportunity to use the latest technology that makes that recovery quicker. It's that it's an enormous incentive to find ways to reintegrate your what you understand with those of others like you, and that you can share and cooperate with in 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 a commercial way. And of course, it's happening in. In government, you know, the example of the electricity coming back, it's also happening in voluntary ways. People are doing all kinds of things, again, often unobserved. They're not unobservable, but they're often unobserved by the economist. The casual help that people give each other in a crisis to get through is is taking place, and all that stuff is bubbling around. And it's really – it's it's quite a beautiful, you know, example of human human activity and cooperation. It is. It reminds me of two things. One in, in Hirschleifer's work and one in my own little experience. Um, Hirschleifer talks about how after World War II, 
when the Allies controlled Germany, they kept Hitler's price controls. And the money supply had roughly quintupled, but prices hadn't been allowed to go up much at all since the late 30s. And so you had all these inflationary pressures that weren't allowed to come out through higher prices. Shortages, perhaps? And therefore, incredible <laughs> shortages. And people going out into the country on the weekends to trade for food and so on. And Hirschleifer has a table in there of the calories people had. And I mean, they were close to starvation. And then Ludwig Erhard, whom he talks about right. uh, with, with General Lucius Clay's support, uh, managed to deregulate prices in the summer of 1948. And we got what was called the German economic miracle. In the, in the chapter um, of the Hirschleifer chapter, we quote from Walter Heller, who was later John F. Kennedy's uh, major economist, uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And, and Hirschleifer quotes from Heller. And about, you know, Heller understood the, the, the power of getting rid of price controls. And by the way, I did my own piece on this in the encyclopedia, the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, titled The, the German Economic Miracle. So that's that one thing. My other thing is I lived in D.C. from Washington, D.C. from December 81 to July 84. And I remember I worked at the Council of Economic Advisors, so the old executive office building. And we had this huge storm one afternoon. So we got let out of work early. And I'm going along Constitution Avenue to cross into Arlington, Virginia. And I'd already had this idea, just being around Washington by then a couple of years, that people don't cooperate a lot. Like, uh, this is not this is not like living in Pittsburgh or something. Not a small town. <laughs> well, it's, not, yeah. it's, it's not like Bailey Falls, say, and it's a wonderful <laughs> life. <laughs> and, and so I'm driving along, and there's all this uh, ice to drive on. And I grew up in Canada, so I was used to driving on ice, right? And people are spinning out, and I'm getting out of my car and helping push people. And it was one of the most wonderful days I had <laughs> in two and a half years of living in D.C., feeling like a real citizen, having other citizens appreciate that, being cooperative in a way that I hadn't seen among Washingtonians before. <laughs> they were surprised to see you, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but it does. It happens a lot, actually, in um, places that get a lot of snow, right? Yeah. Because everybody yeah. understands that sometimes you just need a second shoulder or a second uh, set of, of legs to push somebody out of a out of a snowdrift. And right, um, right. in snowy places, it's an economic observation. In snowy places, I think you get a little more cooperation, at least in the winter. Maybe it doesn't extend to the summer. <laughs> right. Right. No, I think that's right. That's right. Yeah. Let's let's. Um, I'm going to mention one other UCLA economist we haven't mentioned. He's, I don't think he's mentioned in your book, which is Earl Thompson. And Earl Thompson was a slight. He's an underappreciated economist. He had a crazy idea that everything we observe is efficient. Everything, anything you say that looks crazy or wrong or inefficient or dumb or mistake, it's not. It's there for a good reason. And uh, you know, my favorite example of this was that it was I think he uh, he explained the high taxes on jewelry. And diamonds as a way to discourage foreign invasion, right? Because by putting a high tax on 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 the sale of jewelry, there'd be less jewelry sold, and so there'd be less plunder opportunities. It seemed a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Seemed a bit of a stretch. But he 
that's one example that wasn't so compelling. But yeah. many of the other things he came up with to explain the real world were, were very thought-provoking. And he was a, um, he was a fabulous uh, UCLA economist in the puzzle sense. And I may have talked about this on the program before, but I, I once had dinner with him, and, and he, uh, he challenged me to explain the price of uh, the markup of food. Because a lot of people look at restaurant food and they go, wow, the, the raw materials are so cheap. Obviously, they're ripping us off. They forget, of course, that the, one of the most important raw materials that goes into the food is the time of the people cooking it and the people serving it. And those are not, not so cheap and they're not easily observed. And you look at the fact that it's a steak and you forget that somebody had to spend time, had to be hired by the restaurant to cook it. So there's a markup. But Earl's insight, which is fantastic is that part of the markup for the food has to incorporate the time you spend at the table. And he suggests that. I've never seen anyone test this. I don't know if it's literally, if it's just a prediction. But his claim was that the longer the food took to eat, the bigger the markup would be because built into the price had to be the fact that you were renting the table. And you wouldn't want, you could separate it. You could have a meter just for the table. You could char- make the food really inexpensive and then charge more to the people who lingered longer at the table over the food or ate more slowly. But, of course, that would make eating less pleasant, maybe, to, to hear the meter ticking. And so it's just incorporated into the food on average. And I just – that was just a, you know, just a fabulous insight. So Earl is gone. I just – I want to uh, – I think all the, the people we've talked about, almost all of them are gone Jack Hirschleifer, Arch- yeah. Ben Kine is still around. Ben Kine's still alive, but yeah. Harold Demsitz and Earl Thompson are all uh, have all departed, and they were really wonderful uh, at the craft of thinking about how to apply economics to real world, world problems. I want to close with an, uh, one last insight that came out of UCLA's uh, economist work, which you also profile in your book, which is uh, the question of whether firms maximize profits, and I. Alchin, and was Demsitz's co-author? I can't remember. No, no. Just Alchin, 1951? Just Alchin, 1950. 1950. Talk about that paper and how how he looked at that, because it's really interesting. Alchin, there there was this whole controversy at the time, do firms maximize profits? And you might expect Alchin to say, well, you know, of course they do, but that's not where Alchin went. Alchin said, you probably typically don't know enough to maximize profits. There's so much uncertainty. It's not a simple equation. You plug in a bunch of numbers and figure out, it's not a calculus problem in real life. Yeah, yeah, because of all these uncertainties. So he said, here's what we can say. The firms that make closer to optimal decisions are going to do better. And so the environment will select them for survival and select the others for failure. So he gave an analogy, which I think we used literally in the book, which was people leaving Chicago, driving from Chicago. And it turns out they don't know this, but there's only one route out of Chicago that has gas stations and the others don't. Suppose. Suppose, right? (laughs) Suppose. And, And so we can predict if we know that route, which people are going to get far out of Chicago and which people aren't. And so that's kind of like the the profit thing. So we give the example, let's say uh, the minimum wage goes up and there are some firms that are very heavily labor intensive and other firms that aren't. 
even if firms aren't saying, well, is this worker worth hiring at this higher wage? Even if they aren't doing that, the firms that are more labor intensive are going to do worse than the ones that are more capital intensive. So we, the analysts looking at the results say, oh, the ones that shifted to capital did better. It might not have been a shift to capital at all. It's just the ones that were more capital intensive did better. And so the environment selected the ones that were closer to what the optimal would be. And that was, that's the kind of the spirit of, of, his, of his article. And, you know, I didn't, I never thought about it, but it, there's a paper by uh, Becker. I can't remember if he has a co-author. Um, I think it's just by Becker. It's very early in his career where he says, let's assume that people aren't rational. Let's assume they just randomly pick uh, where they can, how much they, they buy a particular good. And what he showed in that paper, it's a really simple little geometry paper, which I used to love and I don't like so much anymore. I'm going to get tied into to the algebra paper and you'll, you can respond. But, but his point was that even if people choose randomly because of the higher price now of the good, let's say a, a good, uh, I think there's an increase in the price of the good. What he's trying to show is that even if people aren't rational, demand slopes downward. So even if uh, people just choose randomly because of the increase in price, you can go look at the article if you want, but the basic point is, is that you're more likely to choose less of the good that's gotten more expensive because of the way it changes your opportunities. It's an application of the as-if hypothesis that, that Friedman put forward in his paper on economic methodology, um, where he argued that we don't really have to know why people do what they do. Precisely, we, if we want to make predictions, it's enough just to, to know that they act as if they're maximizing, say, utility or profits. Uh, an example, he, I think it's in there, is the example, he, well, there's one I know is in there, it's the truck driver. Truck driver doesn't know physics, but the truck driver acts as if the truck driver has a knowledge of physics. They, they will slow down on a wet road. They'll have a very uh, good intuition about the amount of friction that's between the tires and the road. And they, of course, don't know the actual equation, but they'll act, if we assume they... That they, we assume they do know it, our prediction will be right because they act as if they know it. And I used to really love that. I, th- I think it's actually quite an unhealthy problem for a uh, healthy way to, to look at, at economics because, as we talked about with an episode with Paul Flaterer, we'll put a link up to it. If you do that enough, you start to think that it's not just as if, they actually do. That they don't just act as if they're maximizing utility. They actually do maximize utility. That's the way the human brain is, is working when we make decisions about what to buy and what career to go into and what, how long to stay in school and so on. And if that's wrong, the whole idea of welfare economics is, is in deep trouble. But we, we need to hold on to that idea as economists, I think, emotionally, because we want to be able to do welfare economics. We want to be able to say we have a theory of what people actually do, not how we can make accurate – we care about – let me say it a different way. We care about more than making accurate predictions, most of us, most economists. And therefore, I think this whole idea of, of, of what's revealed to us through, through competition can mislead us as to what to, – to something we do care about, which is what do people do in situations when they're the residual climate? Do they only care about profit? Maybe. Maybe they don't. Maybe they care about other things. And I think if we're not careful, we miss that. So that's my critique of that, that, stri- that strand of thinking. Yeah, I remember that Becker article. I think it was around 1962. And if I recall yep. correctly, 
he actually had a debate uh, with Israel Kirzner. I think Kirzner oh, really? weighed in in a different journal, maybe the Southern Economic Journal. And I remember liking them both, <laughs> but I can't remember <laughs> okay. many of the details. But, but Becker had that in his textbook. He had that, and I remember just actually flipping the coins to do the exercise uh-huh. when I was studying for my comprehension. <laughs> going, oh, yeah, that works. But yeah, yeah. Uh, anything you want to say in closing? Um you know, we, we, um, anything you want to say about UCLA? Yeah, so we've covered, oh, just a little on, on regulation and Peltzman and Hilton. Yeah, go ahead. So one of the other strands of the UCLA people was on regulation. And one of the major contributors was George Hilton, again, a guy who was all words and occasionally charts, but, but no equations. And another one was Sam Peltzman, who did a lot of stuff on regulation. I had the fortune of having him my last year at UCLA before he went back to University of Chicago where he'd gotten his PhD. And he did two path-breaking studies while I was at UCLA. One was on the Food and Drug Administration in which he looked at the the Kefauver-Harris Amendment to the Food and Drug Law in 1962 and showed that it had slowed new drug development by 60%. So for an average of roughly 40 new drugs every year, the number went down to about 16. And he had other ways of looking at, well, were those mainly bad drugs that were not developed? And the answer was no. And so we, we, it added, it added, it turns out now, billions of dollars and years to the drug development process. That was one. And the other one was his thing on, on car safety. He looked at the laws in the late 60s that were due in part to Ralph Nader. You had padded dashboards, required seat belts, uh, all these things to make it safer in the event of an accident. And he looked at the data and found that fatality rates hadn't fallen for people in cars. And so what's going on? Well, then he noticed that fatality, fatality rates had risen for motorcyclists and pedestrians. So he hypothesized that what was happening is because people felt safer in a given accident, they were driving more intensely, I mean, faster, following closer, and so on. And therefore, in a given accident, they were safer, but the people outside the car were, were uh, more in danger. I remember teaching that to a class here in Monterey at the Naval Postgraduate School and finding some students were pretty skeptical and i said okay they don't like they don't people don't like that result it's a little too it's a, it's a bridge too far for many non-economists well here's how i got a number of them there i said we were driving along one day we had a station wagon and my daughter was young and she was in the back seat with her seatbelt on and i was going 70 and a 55 and there was this thing back because of the station wagon that she wanted to get access to some game or something she wanted to play and I said, well, honey, to do that, you have to take off your seatbelt. She said, I know. And I said, okay. And what did I do? I slowed down to 55. And I laid that out to my students, and I saw a lot of heads go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I would do. So what are you telling me? It's less safe inside. I'm going to drive more carefully. And so anyway, so that um, – and 
Robert Tolleson and a co-author whom I've forgotten, but we do quote him in the book, uh, looked at NASCAR races and found the intensity went up when the driving got safer. Yeah, so, you know, I'm... um I've always been fascinated by this example we've talked about on the program a number of times. Sam's been on the program talking about it as well. Most people, and even sometimes me, are <laughs> uncomfortable with the idea that incentives have an effect in our subconscious or unconscious. And I, I, I use it in my book on the financial crisis, my book Gambling with Other People's Money, the idea that you would get bailed out or you could be bailed out. Or the fact that you might not lose all your money, or you might lose other people's money but not yours, changes the way you take risks in investing. And I think economists are very comfortable with the idea that that this can work, as I said, unconsciously or subconsciously. I think, again, non-economists find that kind of weird. Like, oh, come on, people aren't really paying that much attention. But if you can lose all your money, that's yours – you will pay attention. So people do yeah. understand that. And that's your daughter case. And I think that's true. The example I use, which you know, I've used before, is that uh, football helmets, which are designed to reduce the risk of, of, of brain damage, of course, can be used as a weapon in, in football. And it, football's, and the NFL, the National Football League, we're talking about American football now, they've become very aware of this, and they've tried to change the way people play football. You, can, you can't lead with your head. You can't. Uh, go head-to-head in, in, in a tackling another player, which used to be very common through much of the NFL's early days. And you know, come on, are you really going to be less careful because your helmet's stronger? And the answer, easy way to think about it is, okay, maybe not every second, every time, but let's play without helmets. <laughs> Do you think you're going to play the same speed and recklessness that you play with the helmet? Uh, and, and, of course, the answer is probably not. You're going to be a little more careful. Now, maybe not every time. You might forget. You might get excited and, and do something, yeah. quote, irrational. But in general, you're, you're going to – those kind of effects are going to have an impact. How big they are – you know, these are, these are the things economists love to think about. Uh, I, I'm a sucker for them myself. Uh, but they have some impact some of the time, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, and I want to just give one example more in your area of the moral hazard with money. Uh, John Anderson ran as a third-party candidate against Reagan and Carter in 1980, yep. and he needed to get 5% of the voter more in order to have the federal government cover a huge part of the cost of his campaign. And I remember watching him on TV that night as the results were coming in, and he said, and obviously he lost, and he said, he, he didn't win the, the election, but did he get to 5%? Well, that's where I'm going to go. Okay, go he, said, he said, this was one of the neatest things I've ever done in my life. And if the results don't come in right, it'll be one of the most expensive. <laughs> well, it was already expensive. It's just he didn't bear the expense. Yeah. He got 7%, so he, he, got his, <laughs> he got his bailout. My guest today has been David Henderson. David, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.